We're in the midst of a, a summer sermon series that we're calling Alive. What we're doing is looking at the kinds of things that we can expect to be present in a community like ours, in a church like ours. Our, our basic assumption is that because the Bible calls us the body of Christ, the living presence of God, of Jesus in our world, that we can expect there to be vitality, life among us. We're not simply an institution or an organization. The body of Christ. And Jesus says, if you remain attached to me, you will bear much fruit. This is living language. So we don't just get together. We don't just come together on a Sunday morning to do our thing. When we are together, somehow we are the visible demonstration of Jesus to our world. Amen? So we've looked at different things that we can expect as this new community. We've looked at practicing Sabbath together. Romelia preached to us about community. We looked at uh, unity and evangelism. Last week, Pastor Michael up, uh, from Logan Square, he talked to us about prayer. And this morning, I want to talk with you about worship. Say worship. This is a word, this is this, an idea that is probably common to most of us, particularly those of us who've been Christians for a little while. It's one of those things that can become sort of background noise. Wallpaper. We just don't notice it anymore. Of course we worship. People worship. That's what Christian people do. But what is worship? I want to tell you this morning that I am a very good worshiper. I, I would call myself an expert worshiper. I, I think I'm really, really good at it. And my guess is that you as well are a good worshiper. Uh, before I tell you what I mean, let me read our text for this morning. It comes from the Psalms, the collection of Hebrew prayers and songs. Psalm chapter 3. I'm going to read the whole thing. It's rather short, just a few verses long. Lord, how many are my foes? How many rise up against me? Many are saying of me, God will not deliver him. But you, Lord, are a shield around me. My glory, the one who lifts my head high. I call out to the Lord and He answers me from His holy mountain. I lie down and sleep. I wake again because the Lord sustains me. I will not fear though tens of thousands assail me on every side. Arise, Lord, deliver me, my God. Strike all my enemies on the jaw. Break the teeth of the wicked. From the Lord comes deliverance. May your blessing be on your people. This is the Word of God. And now, Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be pleasing in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our Redeemer. Amen. I am good at worshiping. I, I, I am... I am I think, very good at worshiping. I think it's one of the things that I do really well if I were to categorize my skills and my talents. I think worshiping would be the top of the list. The, the biblical definition of worship is actually pretty straightforward. In both the Greek and the Hebrew, the language about worship is all about response to something. And we can maybe boil this down to three kinds of responses. An emotional response, a physical response, and a sacrificial response. When we encounter something and we respond to it in worship, there's an emotional response. And maybe the best word for this is awe. 
We're wonder. There's something that catches us, takes our breath away, makes our heart skip a beat. There's an emotional response to worship. There's a a physical response. When the Bible talks about worship, it often has a a physical posture in mind, bowing down, encountering something amazing, majestic. We cannot help but respond not just with our intellect or our emotions, but our bodies actually respond. And, And then finally, there's a There's an emotional response, a physical response, and then there's a a sacrificial response. When the Bible talks about worship, it always carries the idea of service with it. Now, maybe that's not how we think about worship, but when the Bible talks about worship, there's an activity to it. There's a movement to it. There's a sacrificial element to worship where we respond through our behavior, by making sacrifices. So when we think about worship, we can think about awe. We can think about bowing down. We can think about service. This is how the Scriptures talk about worship. We, we, we capture this idea in, in the English word for worship, don't we? This, this word worship comes from an older English word, worth-ship. W-O-R-T-H-ship. Worth-ship. That which we value, that which has worth to us, we respond to emotionally, physically, sacrificially. And, and by these definitions, I think I'm a pretty good worshiper. After all, worship is pretty natural. Worship is a response. And again, by this definition, I think I do pretty well at worshiping. The problem is in what I worship. Worship comes naturally for me. Worshiping God does not. Worshiping God in many respects is neither simple nor natural. I'm a great worshiper. I think I might be the best worshiper in the house today, but I'm a... I'm a bad worshiper when it comes to the living God. You see what I'm saying? You see, you and I, we follow the pattern of our first parents whose hearts were captivated, not by God, but by their own desires for superiority. At the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, Adam and Eve are distracted by a self-interested, beauty, and knowledge that leads away from their Creator. And it's at this moment in the biblical narrative, early on in Genesis, that we see the ease with which we worship our own interests. We exchange the self-sufficient God who creates out of love for anything that promises to place us at the center of our own little universe. From this point forward in the Scriptures, the way we worship profoundly changes. The act of worship remains an innate instinct, but the object of our worship, what we worship, who we worship, is now subject to our deceitful and distracted whims. 
And so you see, when I say that I'm an expert worshiper, what I really mean to say is that I'm an expert worshiper of anything but God. As Christians whose lives are being transformed by the crucified and the resurrected Son of God, we maybe assume that worship should come more naturally, more easily to us. Consider this line from an early Christian hymn in Hebrews. Tyler, I think we have this. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3. The Son is the radiance of God's glory in the exact representation of His being, sustaining all things by His powerful Word. After He had provided purification for sins, He sat down at the right hand of the Majesty in heaven. Now, we don't know the tune that the early church sang this him too, but we can imagine, can't we? We can imagine them gathering together in somebody's home under the threat of persecution, lifting their voices in worship together of the majestic Son of God. It's a beautiful hymn. The truth contained here, I think, captures us in some ways. Shouldn't this be what our worship is like? Lifting up the resurrected Savior with such poetic, beautiful, even urgent, language. And yet, if you're like me at this moment, maybe you catch a glimpse of your friend's iPhone and you begin to think about, oh, when is the new iPhone being released? September, is it? October, maybe? That's how mine my mind works anyways. Or maybe, maybe our minds drift to the friend who recently got engaged and we wonder once again, Will that day ever come for us? Or we remember the stupid choice that our teenage child made this week. We wonder whether people are judging us as bad parents. Over and over again, I place my circumstances, my needs, and myself as the focus of what I worship. I'm distractible. Here then is our tension, church. We simultaneously believe that we, of all people, have the most reason to worship. The Son of God has rescued us and calls us friends. And at the same time, we remain prone to the same self-centered, undirected, and ultimately unfulfilling worship as everybody else. We are to move beyond this limbo, this tension. I want to suggest to you this morning that there are at least two damaging tendencies that we must face if we are to grow into worshipers together of the holy, righteous, and perfect God. The God who, as we read in Exodus, is a jealous God for our worship. Two tendencies for us to be aware of. First is our tendency towards idolatry. Say idolatry. That's not a fun word, is it? Any worship that is not directed to God is idolatry. It's pretty straightforward, right? Any worship where God is not the object in the center of that worship, ultimately is idolatry. 
Consider the the first and the second commandments from Exodus chapter 1. Tyler, we have that as well. And God spoke all of these words. This is uh, when, when Moses brings the commandments to God's people. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. Here's commandment number one. You shall have no other gods before me. Commandment number two, in case the first one was a little bit fuzzy. You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sins of the parents to the third and the fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. There's a Hebrew word for worship. It's the one that uh, captures the idea of physically bowing down. It's used many times in the Old Testament. Over half of the times this word is used, it refers to idolatry. To a bowing down, to a responding in worship to something other than God. The first two commandments, worship only God. And yet this tendency, this ongoing tendency to continue worshiping God. Other things, other people, ourselves. Maybe we could say that one of the major themes of the scriptures is this a holy and loving God who is the only one truly worthy of worship, and a people who worship everything except that God. And this is, of course, not only true of the Old Testament, of the scriptures, it's true for us as well. This is our narrative as well, right? Ask yourself this question, what takes your breath away? What causes you to fall on your knees in adoration? What has so captivated you that you want everybody around you to experience it? What do you sacrifice your time, your talent, your treasure for? I think the way we answer these questions, certainly the way I answer these questions, show that I live just like the Israelites. Knowing that God alone is worthy of my worship and yet continuing to worship idols. And so as outdated maybe as it sounds, we must confess our idolatry if we are to learn to worship God rather than ourselves. I hadn't planned on saying this, but this idea came to mind as we were praying this morning. Worship must involve confession and repentance. Now many of us, maybe we think of worship as sort of a spiritual high or coming on a Sunday morning to get our spiritual fix. But worship must involve repentance and confession where we place before God the idols that we worshiped this week and turn from them. Amen. This is not an exciting part of worship, maybe. It's not what we most look forward to. But without this, we continue to worship idols. Or maybe we come on a Sunday morning and we sing a few words, but that same thing that we've been worshiping all week, all month, our whole lives, remains right next to us. Idolatry, idolatry. 
is the first tendency that we have to address if our church is going to live into being a worshiping people. Here's the second one. Our tendency towards isolation. Say isolation. Idolatry and isolation. Now because worship can be a very intensely personal experience, many of us, myself included, can think about it as a private experience. But there's something very different between personal and private. Tyler, can you put that photo up here? This past week, uh, my wife, son, and I were in Washington State for a family reunion. And, and a couple afternoons ago, we went out to the coast, and we were showing Elliot tide pools, because we don't have that here in Illinois that I'm aware of, at least. And I looked out, and, and, and the picture doesn't do it justice. That's off my phone. But these beautiful evergreen trees jutting up into the sky, this textured sky of dark clouds and blue sky off to the distance, these, these islands off in the ocean. This scene captivated me. It's beautiful. And I thought, now, now people who live here, they could really worship. This is beautiful. This is amazing. I would have a more worshipful heart in this environment. Now, maybe some of you, you're not nature lovers. Maybe for you, it's, it's that certain song or that certain artist, you know? You're a, you're, a, you're a Fred Hammond guy. You're a Hillsong music kind of person. Anybody know what I'm talking about? Hillsong, a couple of you. Or you love the old hymns. Now, maybe for you, there's this kind of, ah, when you hear that song, when you're listening to that CD in your car, when you've got your earbuds in, having kind of your private devotional time, and you think, now I'm worshiping. And let me not downplay these moments of, of personal and even private devotion. But we have to be incredibly clear about the emphasis of the Scriptures when it comes to worship. And the emphasis is always on the community's worship on the congregation's worship. This doesn't mean that our personal, our private worship doesn't matter. No, not at all. It only means that our personal worship flows out of our corporate worship together. Now, most of us kind of flip it the other way. But the testimony of the Scriptures over and over and over again is of a people worshiping together. Our private devotion, our private worship, our personal encounter with God flowing out of that. Even the Psalms, which many of us may think of a collection of private personal prayers, they were used by the Israelites in their, in their corporate worship together. The Psalm that I read to us earlier was written by King David at a moment of great personal tragedy. His son, Absalom, had, 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 had revolted against his father, had driven King David away from his throne. King David is now fleeing Jerusalem. Some dude, do you remember this story? Some dude is following along and just throwing them with, throwing dirt clods and rocks at, at the king. Do you remember this? This is a low moment. And the psalm comes out of this moment. You might think, well, this is a personal, this is a private expression of worship. But no, the psalm is used by the community to worship together. Is this how you and I think about our Sunday service when we gather together? Is, is this the place, is this the time that your worship begins? Is our gathering together in our corporate worship the starting point for you and for your 
private, personal worship and devotion to Jesus. You see, my, my tendency, even as a pastor, but certainly before that, is to show up on a Sunday morning and say, what can I receive this morning? Anybody know what I'm talking about? What can I receive? How will I be blessed? Who will spiritually feed me this morning? And these questions are not all bad, but I want to suggest to you that a much more biblical question would be for us to show up every week and ask, how will we worship today? How will the people of God at New Community Covenant Church gather together in a hot, stuffy auditorium and worship together? Our personal worship flows from our corporate worship. Remember what I said before, that biblical worship is what happens when God's people comes together to acknowledge being in God's presence. This is worship. This is why, church, all of our Sunday service matters. This is why from beginning to end, when we are worshiping together, it all counts. It all matters. The element of service that I mentioned before, this sacrificial response. This is why when people volunteer for our children's ministry, they are worshiping. Amen. Our tech and setup folks who get here at 930 on Sundays and they work together. Can I tell you that they are worshiping even as they prepare this place for us to worship? Our hospitality folks, the people who are praying for this service. All of these elements of sacrificial service are a response to the presence of God among us. This is worship. The greeting time is worship. Did you know that? I know some of you hate the greeting time. All the introverts in the room, we're like, ah, really? Oh, but it's at the greeting time that we get to hear from one another. We get to see each other. We get to shake hands or hug one another. There's a physicality to worship. If you know the Old Testament, the books of the law are filled with verses and verses and chapters upon chapters of what worship looks like, about what the tabernacle is to look like, what the temple is to look like. And it can read as sort of archaic and distance to us. But what is this? This is the physicality of worship. What we do when we come together, the words that we share with each other, the looking each other in the eye and asking about our week, the remembering the prayer request that was shared with us last week and asking how that is. All of these things are worship as we together respond to the presence of God among us. All of our Sunday morning, from beginning to end, from 9.30 when people show up to serve until the last conversation is done and I'm having to kick people out the door at 2 o'clock, it's all worship. Would you agree? All of this time is a holy, set-apart time where God's people, this is the one time of the week where we are together encountering the presence of God and responding together in worship. I don't know about you. This is all I've got. I don't have another church I go to on Wednesdays. This is it. This is the one time every week that I am with God's people and I get to notice God's presence among us and respond in worship that is emotional, physical, and sacrificial. All of what we do matters. We do not worship in isolation. 
Let me just say as a caveat that this means that the uncomfortable elements of our worship count. I've shared with you some of the moments that are uncomfortable for me in worship. Now you know about my awkwardness in the greeting time. And I've talked to you before about, you know, learning to worship, you know, raising my hands and these sorts of things. And I, I, I sound pretty dysfunctional probably when it comes to worship, which is okay. I'm okay with that. But you know what I'm learning is that God is present in my discomfort. And that as a multi-ethnic church, every single one of us, every single week, are going to encounter elements of our worship that will make you uncomfortable. Somebody say amen. Because you know it's true. You're like, oh, we're going to do that song? No. Our service is that short. Our service is that long. He's going to preach that short. He's going to preach that long. Every one of us, at some point, we encounter these elements that make us uncomfortable. Do you know that the Holy Spirit of the living God is using your discomfort to shape you, to shape us? When do you learn the most? When everything's going great? We learn when we're uncomfortable. We learn when we're faced with new challenges. We're able to be formed and shaped as we encounter discomfort, even in our worship together. We encounter, we must face, we must own up to our tendencies towards idolatry and towards isolation. Let me read to you another line from an old Christian hymn. This one is captured in the book of Ephesians, chapter 5, verse 14. Wake up, O sleeper, and rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. There's an urgency in these lyrics, isn't there? Wake up! Wake up! Wake up! There's an urgency here. As this early church gathered to worship, there was an urgency to their worship. We may not always feel this urgency on a Sunday morning. I'll totally admit to you that there are some Sunday mornings when I love to worship with my coffee and my Bible on the back porch. That would be beautiful. But somehow this early church captures the urgency of God's people coming together in worship, encountering God together in worship. I want to suggest that they had an idea of what was happening when they worshipped. The early church understood the consequences of their worship. And so what I want to do is I close our time out this morning. In a minute, I'm going to invite some friends to come up here and join me. Uh, but, to, but to close this out, I want to just run through the psalm one more time, Psalm chapter 3. And I want to show you just from one psalm some of the massive consequences when you and I gather together for worship because we can forget some of these things. We can assume that, well, we're, we're coming to church. We're singing some songs. I'm going to see somebody I haven't seen for a while. i, I got to come because i got to serve. I want to show you just from one psalm the massive consequences of when God's people gather together for worship. Number one, we are provoked to acknowledge the hard stuff. Look at verse one. O Lord, how many are my foes? How many rise up against me? The psalm starts off by acknowledging my life is hard. I'm under attack. You may have had to fake it all week long. You may have had to keep it together all week long. You may not have had anybody you could have been honest with all week long. But when we show up to worship together, we are compelled to acknowledge the hard stuff of our lives. Amen? There's no faking it. There's no glossing over. There's no pretending to be somebody that we're not. We acknowledge even the most difficult areas 
of our lives. Number two, as we worship together, we view our lives closer to how God sees us. In verse 2, David says, many are saying of me, God will not deliver him. In other words, this is what appears to be true from their vantage point. He's lost. He's sunk. God has abandoned him. When we gather together in worship, we begin to see our lives, not how other people see our lives, not even how we see our lives, but how God sees our lives. Anybody need that today? Anybody need a reminder of how God sees you, of what is true in your life? In worship, there's a space created where we remember how God sees us, our identity in Jesus, our chosenness, the fact that we are loved and redeemed by God. Number three, as we worship together, God is not limited to the immediacy of our circumstances. Verse 3, David writes, But you are a shield around me, O Lord. You bestow glory on me and lift up my head. Now that's not what seems to be happening. There doesn't seem to be a shield around him or glory on his head. He's, he's having a guy throw dirt clods at him right now. And yet, in worship, in worship we find that God is not limited to the circumstances that are right in front of our face right now. God transcends that. What is true for you yesterday is true for you today will be true for you tomorrow. Whatever you're facing, whatever it's in your face, whatever is blinding you today does not blind God, does not bind God. Amen. Number four, as we worship together, we encounter God as whole people with our hearts and our minds. We see this throughout this psalm that That David worships and the community worships as people who have brains and who have hearts, who have intellect and who have emotions. Now, Christine's going to talk about this in a minute, so I'm not going to say a lot about this. But when we worship together, we worship as whole people. Not just brains that are floating around. They're not just hearts detached from any intellect. We worship with all of us. God wants all of us in worship. Number five. When we worship together, we are situated in the present moment, reminded of God's past faithfulness and God's future provision. Some of us don't want to be in the present moment because the present moment sucks. It's hard. It's ugly. We want to be somewhere else. We want to be back there when things were good. We want to be up there when things surely will be better if that thing just happens. When we worship together, we're able to be grounded right here, right now. Fully present to the Holy Spirit of God right now. Fully present to each other. Why? Because we're reminded of all God has done for us in the past. We're reminded of God's future provision for us. So we can be content, just like the Israelites were content with manna just for that day. In worship, we find manna enough for today. So we can be content in the present situation, whatever the present situation holds for us. Are you with me still? What number am I on? Number number six? Thank you. As we worship together, our requests of God, listen, are neither presumptuous nor timid. Verse 7, the first part, David cries out, Arise, O Lord, deliver me, O my God. 
This is a bold request. Arise, O God. Deliver me. Pay attention to me. Rescue me. This is not a timid request. This is not a, you know, if you could get around it, if I'm worthy of your attention, if you could just give me a minute here. This is a bold request. There's no timidity here. But watch this. It's not presumptuous either. God, you owe me. God, look at all that I've done for you. You better rescue me. In worship, we find that we can make these bold requests of God that are neither timid, as if we're an orphan who has to beg for some crumbs, or presumptuous, as if we're somehow entitled to God's provision. You see what I'm saying? We can request boldly, with courage, as children of a loving Father. Number seven, as we worship together, we are aware that God is providing for us. In verse five, David says, I lie down and sleep. I wake again because the Lord sustains me. Lying down and sleep is perhaps the last thing you would expect someone in David's circumstances to be doing. His son has just ran him off from his own throne and kingdom. He does not know if he'll be restored. He doesn't know if his life will be spared. And what does he say? What does he work into this song? Oh, I'm sleeping like a baby. I sleep well. And God wakes me up in the morning. How are you sleeping these days? You sleeping well? You sleeping soundly? You sleeping peacefully? In worship, this space is opened up where we see that no matter what life seems like to us right now, God is actually providing for all my needs. Yeah, I know it looks like I should be totally stressed. Yeah, I know it looks like I should be tearing my hair out. Yeah, I know it looks like I should think that the world is ending. But you know what? I'm going to sleep good tonight. I need this, church. I, I, I desperately need this. I don't always sleep so well. You can ask my wife. I need the space to be opened up where I'm reminded that God is providing for all of my needs. That I can release this. I can let go of this. It's ultimately not up to me to provide for me. Number eight, just a couple more. A space is created as we worship together for God to intersect with our deepest needs. I will not fear the tens tens of thousands drawn up against me on every side. I don't know if you have tens of thousands drawn up against you, but surely you have areas of deep, great need in your life. If I were to guess, these are the areas where you have calluses in your life, where you have bandages in your life, where you have protected yourself. You've needed to. These areas of woundedness and vulnerability, pain and suffering. Areas of deep need in your life. And we go through our lives most of the time having to cover these up, having to protect these. And yet in worship, we're invited to open up our hands to take off the bandages, to allow the callus to soften, and to allow God to encounter and meet and begin to heal the areas of our deepest and greatest needs. This is why people weep in worship. This is why, this is why we laugh together at times in worship. 
Because these areas of vulnerability that have become hardened and protected are opened up to a loving and tender God. We need this space. Would you agree, church? If we have anything life-giving to offer our neighbors, our worship must allow for this kind of space. To allow for the healing God to actually heal and touch as we worship together. Number nine, we remember that God loves our imperfect selves. Of the second part of verse seven, it kind of stands out, doesn't it? Strike all my enemies on the jaw. Break the teeth of the wicked. Some of you love how that sounds. This is not a very Jesus-like prayer, is it? Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. I love this because as we come to gather and worship, there's not a question of getting it right. There's not a question of doing it right. There's not a question of getting our acts together before we come and worship. If you're angry on a Sunday morning, you show up to church angry. If you're cynical, you show up cynical. If you're let down, you show show up let down. If you've sinned like crazy the night before, you show up to church again. We show up as a broken, sinful, imperfect people. Amen. The minute that we lose sight of this, we lose sight of the fact that God accepts us exactly as we are. We lose the grace of worship. We think that this is something that we have to do. And if we don't do it right, then we're not going to really have worshipped. It's a lie. We worship as people who have been given grace upon grace upon grace upon grace upon grace. Number 10, we are reoriented as we worship together rightly to our God. This is so important as we think about idolatry in our lives. Look at verse 4. To the Lord I cry aloud. To the Lord I cry aloud. And he answers me from his holy hill. David could have looked at many different directions at this moment in his life. He could have looked to help from his military allies. He could have rallied his troops. But where does he look? He looks to his God. He looks to the only one who can truly rescue him, who can truly protect him, who can truly lead him. You and I, every single week, we look to all kinds of things for our rescue, for our identity, for our purpose, for our hope. When we gather in worship, we find that we actually only have one thing to look at. Jesus. The crucified and resurrected Jesus. When we worship together, when we come together and respond towards God, we are oriented once again to our Savior. I picture it like this. I've been going like this all week, and on Sundays as I worship, I'm turned back like this. Oh, yeah. Here's the last one. When we gather to worship together, our hope is renewed. The psalm ends in verse 8, From the Lord comes deliverance. May your blessing be on your people. We don't know when David wrote this psalm, but it sounds like he's kind of in the thick of it still. It sounds like he doesn't know how the story is going to play out. He doesn't, it sounds like he doesn't know what's going to happen to Absalom or whether he'll ever be back on the throne. He's in the thick of it, and yet he still has hope. He still has hope. For the Lord, from the Lord comes deliverance. May your blessing be on your people. I know you well enough. I know myself well enough to know 
that we can have a shortage of hope around here at times. Not just, I don't mean just in our church, I just mean life in general. Especially those of us that are kind of like a certain generation, we can be really cynical. Anybody know what I'm talking about? We can be really cynical. We need hope. And it's really hard for me to conjure up hope on my own. I need you. I need us in worship together as we're oriented towards Christ to remember that we have hope. We've said before that hope is not wishful thinking. Hope is a conviction that God is going to do what only God can do. So when we worship together, we have hope. Do you need hope? Do you need hope? I think the early church, as they gathered to worship, they felt this urgency around worship. Because they had an idea, maybe just a a faint idea, but they had an idea of all that was going on when they gathered together. Do we? Do we? Do we understand the massive implications of when we're in this room together? Of as we serve each other, as as we sing together, as we open the scriptures together, as we do life together, as we repent towards one another. Do we understand all that is happening as we worship together, as we together encounter a God and respond physically, emotionally, and sacrificially? Do we know? Of course it's complicated, and that's why I'm going to invite these folks. Actually, you guys go ahead and come on up. Uh, Christine and John and Kelly, come on up. I, I want these folks to kind of help close out our, our service this morning um, before we worship together because I, I know that as I preach these things, there's this, for me at least, there's this passion that comes out of seeing how the Scriptures talk about worship. There's a new vision that sort of comes up in front of my face. I think this is who God has called us to be. This is what we can expect as a people to worship like this, to experience this. But we all know that it, it's hard, it's complicated, it can be confusing, right? Am I the only one who knows that? It can be hard. Worshiping together, particularly as a multi-ethnic church, can be confusing. And so what I want, the way I want us to end is to have three people uh, share a little bit with you about what worship can look like in our context this morning. And I hope they will be fairly succinct so that we can do some Q&A after. So Christine is up here because she and I have been in conversation for a while about worship, and I think she has some important thoughts for us, as I mentioned before, about what it means to worship as holistic people. Heart, mind, strength, pulled together. And again, as a multi-ethnic church, this is an important, maybe complicated conversation that we need to have, we need to have in front of us. Of course, Kelly and John, as you guys know, are our worship leaders. Kelly is, is kind of up front leading. John does a lot of the behind-the-scenes stuff, although he's been gone for the past five weeks, but we're not going to hold it against him because he just got married, which is a reason to be gone for five weeks. So I've asked, I've asked John and Kelly to share with you as our leaders in this ministry some of their vision. What do they want to see us grow into as a church, as we worship together? Does, does this make sense what we're going to do right now? Okay, so we're going to hear from these guys, and then we'll, we'll, we'll take a couple questions. So we're going to start with Christine, and then just move on down. They're each going to say a few words, and then we'll do some Q&A.
comfort and they're, they're not sure how to process through, make sense of maybe some of this discomfort. And so what I want to do is just offer some lenses and ways of approaching um, this discomfort. Um, so the first lens that I offer is just taking uh, your experience and trying to look at it through the viewpoint of a poet. So um, my reference point is the Psalms. Um, in the Old Testament, they are referred to, the Psalms are referred to as stringed instruments, oftentimes accompanied by songs, song sung with lyrics. And so if you take the characteristics of the Psalms, which is poetic, um, they're usually personal expressions to God, and the lyrics are best understood in the full context. So the complete song, instead of pulling out maybe a line or two and then making some kind of a, a, a judgment or saying, oh, is this what it's saying about God? You look at the whole thing and you say, oh, this, this is saying God is holy or God is trustworthy. So looking at it in the full context. Um, so I'd like to take that reference point of the Psalms and, and bring it to our Sunday worship service, um, specifically in that musical aspect. We express our devotion to God in different styles. So sometimes you'll see songs that are sung um, to paint a picture. So again, poetic, like the Psalms. Um, the images being understood by the end of the song and not necessarily in one single line. So for instance, um, you are God in heaven and here I am on earth. If you just take that as it is, nobody knows what the heck that means. You know, it's you are God in heaven, here I am on her earth, um, let my words be few. It's about God's holiness and our response to his holiness. That's what that whole song is about. So if you look at it in the context of the whole song, sure, it makes sense. It's making a theological statement. Um, as a side note, being a poet does not mean that we get to sing whatever we want, but we, we should really ask the questions of, what is the song about? What does it say about God or Jesus? Right? So it's, it just doesn't mean free-willing, artistic, poetic expression, do whatever you want. Um, the second uh, type of style uh, you might consider as mini-sermons, so like hymns. Historic, thank you, uh, hymns. So historically, uh, when hymns were first being created, it was to give access to the poor, um, there were uneducated folk, and so it was easy just to sing a tune and combine it with lyrics, and it's easier to remember. So it was giving access to good theology for, for the poor. So that just gives you a little bit of a history. In fact, um, even just Great is Thy Faithfulness, if you think about the lyrics of that, that actually started as a poem. It was started as a poem given to a publishing company, and then it was joined uh, with, a, with a tune. So it's just, again, to help us get some good theology. When, when life gets hard, you start singing the tune and you remember God's sustenance, God's faithfulness. So just to end that lens, uh, approaching church music with the lens of a poet helps us understand how others express uh, the place in us that wants to love God deeply and wants to connect with God deeply. Another lens, and this isn't going to be too long, but I've already alluded to it, but approaching music through the eyes of a theologian. So asking the question, when I'm singing this song, what does it say about God? What does it say about Jesus? Is it all about me, or is it pointing me closer to God? Only you can fill my heart with gladness. Breathe in me new life. Only you could answer my heart's cry. So what does that say about God? 
just shout it out. What's, what's your first image or impression that you hear? Only you can sustain me. I can. Only you could answer my heart's cry. What's an image that's painted with that? Great. I, I think of sustenance. So food, only you can breathe in me new life. Right? So again, those are questions. Another lens. Think of a, a photography. You put the new lenses on, different lenses to capture certain things. You zoom in on certain things. The last aspect is approaching music as a sociologist. So think about what and how culture places value on our music. When I hear CCM, so contemporary Christian music, there's a certain group of music that is included in that category and some that are excluded. And so when I approach certain songs, I think, oh, this is, this is going to help me get closer to God. But certain songs, what, do we, what kind of happens in our head when we think, oh, this is contemporary Christian music, this is um, the mainstream, and certain things aren't? How do we treat those songs that are not mainstream? We may not even realize it, but some of us might think, oh, they're less valuable, they're less accessible, they are irrelevant, they're not going to be able to speak into my life. Those are some of the things that I start thinking of. But it's not true. But to, to just kind of end that, that lens of asking the question of how does media or the outside systems affect my current experience of worship, how does that, how does that taint or paint or... Or, or change it. That can really help me when, when I encounter discomfort to, to kind of get past that, to push past it, because I've got different lenses. So really, just in summary, instead of when we come to discomfort in worship, instead of being uh, dismissive or saying, oh, this song does not do this, this, and this, just to put on a different lens. I'm going to take out my, my camera lens. I'm going to try zooming in on this. I'm going to look at it this way, and I'm going to look at it this way. What value does it bring if I look at it in this way? So instead of criticalness, let's try to, be, to engage it in a different way with a different lens. Okay. Um, so I'm just going to read part of a song. Um, and this is the eighth psalm. I'm starting at verse four. What is man that thou art mindful of him, and the son of man that thou visitest him? For thou hast made him a little lower than the angels, and hast crowned him with glory and honor. Uh, thou madest him to have dominion over the works of thy hand. Thou hast put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, yea, the beasts of the field, the fowl of the year, and the fish of the sea. And whatsoever passeth through the paths of the sea, O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is thy name in all the earth. Um, The reason I read that is because, to me, that is like such a great worship to God. It's like saying, wow, you chose me, little old me, a nobody, and just gave me complete and utter control of this great planet that you have made and to me, my response is, wow, God, you are great. Because he didn't have to. Um, he could have created us, and he could have formed us, and he could have said, I'm going to control every little thing that you do, and I'm going to make sure that you do it the way I want you to do it, because I'm God and I can do that. But he didn't. He gave us a choice. And 
I have heard it said on a number of occasions, it is not my right to worship. It is not um, my duty to worship. It is my privilege to worship. It is something that I get to do. It is something, it's not something that I have to do. It's something that I want to do um, because I'm just in such awe of what God has done and what God is going to do. And I, and I guess my idea uh, of worship is, my idea is that we would all feel that way. Um, and maybe for you it comes on a different level. But my, my hope, my vision uh, for Newcom is that we would all feel that way. Worship is not something that we have to do every Sunday morning. We come in here and we get this allotted amount of time and this is what we do at this time. This is just something that we have to do. And if it doesn't happen, <gasps> the world is going to fall apart. No, this is something that we get to do. This is our privilege to come in here, to come together as a family, as a community, and raise our voices as one and worship the Almighty God. And I know I sound like overpassionate about it, but that's just, you know, that's, that's who I am. That's where I live. Um, and so I don't, I would, I would hope that we are receptive to each other. Um, the way I worship is very outward. It's very passionate. It's very forward. And that's just the way I worship. Because that's where my passion is. I wear my passion on the outside. Some of us wear our passion on the inside. And we are just bubbling over with joy. And this is all you get. And some of us, and some of us our, our passion is not even, it doesn't even display. It's just like, wow. And that's all you get. But it's the same, it's the same passion. It's the same worship. From seat to seat, from row to row, it's the same thing. And I would hope that we're not looking at each other and saying, oh, you're not worshiping because you're not doing this. Oh, you're not worshiping because you're not doing this. Oh, you're not worshiping because your eyes aren't closing. You're not worshiping because you're not lifting your hands. You're not running around the church and you're not screaming and shouting. You know, but maybe you can take time and look at that person and say, oh, that's how you worship. Maybe I can get something from that too. You get it? You know, it's not, like I said, it's not something that you have to do. It's something that you get to do. And however you get to do it is how you do it. I get to sing. I get to shout. I get to scream out loud. I get to lift my hands and be wild and crazy. And maybe for you, that is something that would be forced on you. For you, you get to be silent. You get to be still. You get to be completely and totally focused on God and not move and not do anything. That is what you get to do in that time with your Savior. You get it? So my, my vision, my dream, is that we would all learn to worship with each other in our own separate ways, but with the knowledge and with the passion that this is not something that we have to do. This is not something that is, um, it's not something that is just automatic. It's not a part of service. It is a privilege. It is a privilege, and it is something that we should just be overjoyed and bubbled up about.
Are there any questions at this point? Are there any questions at this point? Keep going? Okay. Well, for those who know me, I, I tend to approach things from a hybrid perspective. So I have the same passion as Kelly, but I, I also approach it from a very technical perspective. And so just from a macro lens, um, for me and, and Kelly, our vision for new community um, in Bronzeville, in the context of Bronzeville, is to be a multi-ethnic, multicultural worshiping community that expresses and experiences God through our different worship expressions. So just in this room alone, there, there's a vast vocabulary of different worshiping styles. And so when talking about diverse worship, this is pretty much at the forefront of most churches who are trying to um, embrace this vision of God Embrace this vision that John saw in Revelation where he saw every nation, every tongue worshiping at the throne. And so our challenge is to see that actualized in our community. The challenge is having to deal with our differences. So it is our desire to see everyone express themselves before God in worship and to be accepted and to be known. But we also know that as human beings, we come with our own biases and our own experiences and our own baggage um, about how worship should look and how it should be based on how we grew up, based on what we're exposed to. And so when we all come together, in a sense, we have to be extremely intentional. And at some points, um, diversity, diverse worship Uh, different styles of worship has to be forced on you. And so it creates this this sense of discomfort for some of us. And so the question is, if we're going to deal with this, how do we learn how to find comfort and discomfort? And I think that's where we are as a multi-ethnic church. We have to learn how to be uncomfortable and worship in discomfort. For example, in Psalms 3, when David's crying out, he's worshiping out of discomfort. He's worshiping out of his own pain. And so for us, when we, let's say, if some of us are from the white experience of worship or the Asian experience of worship, as you can see, most of us up here today are black. So we're going to come from a more gospel flavor, more rhythmic flavor that may be a place of discomfort for you. It's reality and vice versa. So how do we, with our, with our one mission in mind, how do we worship God together and how do we deal with this discomfort? How do we deal with our own issues? And I think that's, um, in the end, that's going to be uh, the, main, the main challenge that we have to overcome. Everything else is subordinate to that. It comes with it. But that's, I think that's the aspect of our vision that we really want to keep at the forefront of our minds that, yes, it's uncomfortable, but we're going to do this anyway because it honors our Father. It honors God. This is his heart. This is his vision. And so part of worshiping him, part of acknowledging his heart is to, to, is to acknowledge and appreciate the multiplicity of his counsel as well and our expressions in worship.
So that's pretty much what I have to say about that. You guys are smart. I'm really, I really am grateful to God for, for our whole church and how we worship. But I, I want you to hear from me as, as, as your pastor. I'm incredibly grateful that God has blessed us with people like this to lead us uh, in worship with these kinds of ideas and thoughts. Would you agree? So thank you guys for sharing these things. I appreciate that. Um, we're going to take just a couple minutes for questions. Tommy, I think you have one. And if I'm going to pass the mic, which some of you may not like to talk in the mic, but if you could, it'll help everybody kind of hear you. So, Tommy, do you, did you have a question? Can you... Okay. Um, so, first of all, thank you for speaking, all of you. Um, I really benefited from your insights. But uh, my question was sort of, I guess, directed more to uh, Jonathan and Kelly as... Um, what are you thinking in terms of forms of worship that aren't necessarily musical? Have you thought about incorporating, or is that sort of in your vision for worship and new community having worship that isn't necessarily like singing songs? I don't know whether you guys have thought about that at all. Um, how, do you, how do you mean? Um, well, I guess like if someone prefers to dance, like dancing through worship or other forms of expression that aren't necessarily musical. We have talked about that. Um, I think that introducing that form of worship, uh, dance, um, I call it arts, worship arts. Um, It has to be presented in a way that it is completely and totally understandable to everybody. Um, It has to be backed up theologically. Um, and it has to be understood that it is a form of worship to God and not just entertainment. Because uh, in my experience, I've gone to a few churches where there have been worship dancers, and it's just distracting. Um, because it's just dancing, it's not really worship. Um, and so we have talked about adding that, and when, when, we do, when we do add it, we want it to be worship and not just something that we're doing, you know? Did you have something to add? Uh, was she able to answer your question? Was that, and, was that cool? And we have people in our church who would actually like to lead us even in that specific way of dance. So, yep. Uh, who else has a question? Yes. Yeah, that's fine. Thanks. Really enjoy the discussion so far. I'm a diversity and inclusion consultant in what I do for my corporation. And it's all about making sure we leverage differences for the betterment of the corporation. And I think of this discussion, and I think of when Paul says in one of his letters, you know, whether from good motives or bad motives, as long as Christ is preached, that's a good thing. So I think when we all have the perspective that all these worship styles, as long as we know that God is pleased with each and every one of those styles, then I think we're better off as an organization. I appreciate that. Uh, Christine, do you want to say anything to that briefly? Or any, okay. Thank you for that. That's, that's helpful. Uh, anybody else? Questions? Really? I thought there would be more questions about this. Because I know you all got lots of opinions you share with me about worship, so, you know. <laughs> Hello. Um, 
Hi, brother. That was my brother back there. I didn't know he would be here. Um, <laughs> when I think about worship, um, I reflect upon my Baptist upbringing. And um, I just remember being a child and being in the choir um, and then seeing worship all around me and worshiping in the choir and not really understanding, not knowing what I was doing, not knowing what I was talking about until later, um, I actually understood the words that, that I was singing and that everybody else was singing in their prayers. Um, so how would you, you know, back then have encouraged me as a person who didn't even know what I was doing and was just going through the motions? It's like you go to church, that's what you do. You sing, you praise, and you lift your hands. And, and how do you grow into that? Even looking at if you're more of an inward person or an outward person, how, how does that develop? Um, and what do you do to develop that? I mean, I'm thinking in terms of just knowing God. You know, I didn't know God. I didn't know who God was in my life. God was not at the center of my life. So it was hard for me to worship when I know who I was supposed to be worshiping. So um, any of you, any thoughts on that? Uh, real quick, uh, parents, if you want to go get your kids right now and bring them back so they can join us as we close in worship in a few minutes, so you just can jump up and grab them. Um, in response to that, um, I, I would say that those who are in charge, say, of the um, maybe chorus, the choir, um, those who are picking or selecting the songs, I think it's part of their responsibility as they're introducing certain songs to, to really talk through it a little bit. You are singing about a God who, etc. And um, so incorporating even um, a personalness about those songs. So for instance, you're singing about He is Able. Okay, we're not just simply focusing on the technical aspect, can you hit the notes, but um, folks, when we are singing this, part of, part of being a musician or part of singing, um, I think we, we all understand this, but I don't know if you've experienced where the song becomes more alive or there's a punch to it when you believe it. So if you believe he is able, so think about your situation. Do you believe he's able? Apply that truth to that situation. Okay, now sing out of it. So kind of an application, um, real-life application to, to those songs. Um, to, to answer your question, it's really the, the leaders of each of those groups, I think it's part of their responsibility to shepherd folks through as opposed to we're just going to sing this song. Does that make sense? Part of it is, is the leader. And to add to that as well, because, um, you know, we're talking about worship, I think worship has to be something that you practice. Otherwise, you're just not going to get good at it. You know, worshiping God takes practice. Um, I, I know we'd like to think that it's this organic experience that just comes on you, but it, 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 it's, it's a term that I use or phrase that I use, practicing God's presence. And that's really what it is. It takes repetition. So once once you've captured an understanding of what a song is saying to you and then applying it to you and making it relevant to you, then it just comes through repetition, just like anything else you get good at. It's 
repetitive. You just keep doing it, even when you don't feel like it. Is there another question? Um, I'm going to go over here and then back to Emily, and then we'll probably be done. Let me say one other thing uh, real quickly about that. We have to have someone to worship. Yeah. Right, Candace? There are people who gather to worship, and we've done this before for sure, where we're just going through the motions. We're singing certain things, we're saying certain things, but there's no real conviction that God is present among us. And so for, for all of our technical expertise, for all of our strategic planning, at the end of the day, if God's not present, if we're not confessing our idolatry and coming and meeting God and God alone, if God alone is not the source of our worship, it will fall flat. We won't encounter God like you're saying. So there is this teaching element, there is this practicing element, but there also must be this conviction on our part that it is God and God alone who meets us in worship. No matter how tight John has the band, no matter how good of a set list Kelly has picked out, no matter how holistically, it, all of that stuff doesn't matter at the end of the day if God is not the only object of our worship. Yes? Well, to kind of piggyback what Candace and um, John were saying, when I, when I think about worship... Um, I think of it as, okay, say for instance you're in a relationship, right? With a um, you know, girlfriend, boyfriend, or even wife or husband. How do you show that you that you actually, you know, love that person? You show them some type of affection, you know, you hug them, you kiss them, you all that type of, you know, that nasty stuff. But <laughs> anyways, I'm just kidding. Anyways, I think worship to God is showing our affection. You know, when we bow down, we will, you know, prostrate, or even just, you know, just just meditating on, you know, his word, you know, and meditating on him, just showing him. It's our way, my way too, it's our way of showing how much we love him. Um, and the easiest way to actually get it now is actually have to start, I believe, outside the church, at home, you know, or, you know, any, you know, you can worship anywhere. Just like Pastor David was saying, because I didn't know what worship was until like until I actually started to understand and study. I thought worship was just crying, you know, tears, sweating, you know, shouting, and all that type of stuff. But worship is actually showing, you know, I think in a way it it brings me closer to God. Well, to me, yeah, it brings me closer to God, um, and it show, you know, I I feel much better afterwards, and you know, I have. I start to realize the things that I was doing that was that was right, that I thought was right was wrong, but I mean that's just. That's what... Thank you very much, uh, Emily. Uh, so this question sort of uh, combines several of the other questions that have been asked already, but um, I'm still really curious. We as Protestants tend to protest that that's what we do against a lot of traditions. But the thing is, is that there's all kinds of traditions from different cultures that add a richness to worship. And so we've brought up some of them already, the idea of, you know, singing hymns or dancing. And I was just wondering what your philosophy is on how to incorporate them or to, um, or just, or not to, because, you know, some of them are too controversial just could you speak to that a little bit more as to how you make that decision? Would you like to answer that? Um, no. 
guys confused on the question? I think. Can you speak to sort of how we bring together, Emily, tell me if I'm right, different traditions from different cultures, different backgrounds, how we honor those, integrate those together? Is that, I mean, like what the philosophy behind using different church traditions, cultural traditions, you know, like, worship like is? From an Orthodox tradition or from a high church tradition or. Well, you know, I think it, that's a, and that's a that's a that's a big bite. It's, you know, there's a lot there. That's that's a part of our heart as far as a, a, reaching out to people from different church traditions. But I think that just from starting out, we have to be able to find out where people in our community are coming from, like. I think that it's a, it's a very, it's a broad subject matter, but it's also um, relevant in our microcosm of a community. Like, we, we're small, and so, so maybe we have all the elements from all these backgrounds here. It's just a matter of finding out. And right now, because that takes so much time, we're actually still doing it. It's a, it's a work in progress. So it's... It's one of those things where you just kind of have to learn as you go, and you learn as you meet new people in your community. So, so far, we've just met um, individuals um, who come from um, a more liturgical background. Hymns, uh, there's a certain form to a service. And then we, we also have those in our, in our congregation who come from a more Pentecostal background, where it's, it's, it's freer. Um, in a sense, and uh, responds to the Holy Spirit in a different way. So, you know, it, it, it's pretty much whoever we're meeting at the time, then we begin to entertain how we're going to reach them. So we're, also, we're thinking about the community, but we're also thinking about individuals as well. It, it's a good question, but it's, it's, very, it's very complex. Uh, I'm, I'm part of the prayer team, and one, one way that this is being played out is um, learning where each person, very similar, is coming from, but also saying, okay, um, where do we want the church to go as far as prayer is concerned? Do we want to be intercessors? Do we want to be people who learn how to listen and uh, respond to God? And so... We, we sit around a table, we talk about the, the benefits and the advantages and the strengths of each of those aspects, and then we start talking about this is the direction we want to go. Let's say we want to be more listener, listening-focused in our prayer. Well, let's try implementing or creating a plan to start moving in that direction. We don't dismiss the other intercessors or the other ways of doing prayer, but it's, we, we respect one another and say, this, this is really going to benefit the church if we learn how to be listeners during prayer. Um, and so what we're actually doing is we're, we're, we're starting to create a plan and going to implement hopefully later in the September, um, in the fall. But that's just one way that it's played out right now. What we have tried to do uh, so far is um, incorporate different styles of music um, as well as 
making space in the worship for people to be able to worship the way they worship. Um, we do hymns. We may not do it like high church because we don't have like the big organ and, you know, the 15 harmony choir, you know, but we try and, um, we try and do certain things authentic, authentic to the way um, it was created. And while still keeping the feel of new community in Bronzeville. Um, we're not trying to divide our worship into now we're going to do this section and now we're going to do this section and now we're going to do this section. We're trying to incorporate everybody's form of worship into one cohesive, um, I don't want to say style because this just sounds commercial, but one cohesive thing um, where we are all worshiping together, coming from separate backgrounds, worshiping in our own way, but this is how we worship here. You get it? Okay, uh, sorry. <laughs> you have to ask your questions afterwards because we want to actually worship together today. <laughs> Sonia, man, yes. So as worship leaders, can you just kind of talk really briefly about what we can do as a congregation, as a community, to support in this effort of worship? All that you've been talking about, like, what do we need to do? Um, from my standpoint, right there in front, um, you don't see it. Um, because I choose not to show it, but it, it, gets, uh, it gets slightly frustrating when you're not here. Um, and that's just, me, that's just me being transparent and completely brutally honest. We start worship at 11, two people are here. Uh, and you can't experience the worship that we're trying to set up if you're not here. Uh, so you can get here on time. Uh, that's one thing you can do. Another thing you can do is just participate in the worship. Participate in the worship, you know. Um, and yes, if, if your way of worshiping is just standing there, please worship God how you worship God. However, um, doing absolutely nothing in my book is just not okay. It's not okay. And, and it sounds harsh, and some people are probably going to get offended, but it really is just not okay to stand in the presence of God and do absolutely nothing. I mean, and understand where I'm coming from. I come from a very Pentecostal background where if you're even just, even just close your eyes is a show of respect and humbleness to the Almighty God. You know, so just respond to the worship and get her on time. That was a good question. That was a good question. And can I say, we're kind of uh, we're kind of like experimenting today with doing preaching first, and it's rough. Like when you know, because I preached right almost right away today, and people come in, and I and we get it right. Like there's reasons things happen. I have a little child. All kinds of things happen on Sunday mornings, right? Um, 
But there is something different when the church is together to worship together, which is what we want to do for the rest of our, our time. So worship team, you guys come on up. Can we thank these guys again for their time, their energy into this? Um, so uh, kind of a quick transition here, and then we're going to worship together. Uh, our ushers are available with um, some visitor cards here. Uh, so if you're visiting with us for a second or third time, could you just put your hand up in the air like this, hold it up? Hold it up, hold it up, hold it up. We got one visitor right here, so we welcome. We're glad that you're here. Got another one in the back here. Thank you guys for being with us. Uh, some more in the very back here. So um, take this visitor card, just fill it out, drop it in the offering plate here in just a minute, please. Prayer cards as well. I've already seen some of you filling those out. Thank you. Our prayer team prays every single week. There's usually two or three emails uh, that go around during the week with new prayer requests that come in via the website or uh, passed on from community groups. So please let us know your requests. Put those in the offering plate in just a minute as well, and, uh, and we will certainly be in prayer for you. Uh, John is going to make an announcement about an event here in Bronzeville here in just a second, uh, but also please note that we're going to do an all-church bowling event uh, that is coming up. When is that coming up? 23rd. Wow, great. Okay, so all the information, it starts at 12. I had said two in an email. I was wrong. It starts at 12. The uh, location is on the website. All the information is there. Um, I don't, do you have to sign up for that, Romelia, or is it just kind of a show up? So please sign up. Please sign up. Please sign up. Let us know you're coming. This is just fun. No agenda. Uh, all ages are welcome. Uh, fairly inexpensive, I think. So I hope you can be there for that. And then, John, tell us about this, this event. I'm not sure who was with us from the beginning, but one of the things that we... Uh, continue to say is that when we come to Bronzeville, we're not here to bring God to Bronzeville. We're here to join in what God is already doing in Bronzeville. So there's, there are ways you can do that. Over, I'm not sure if you're familiar with the historic Pilgrim Baptist Church. The Pilgrim Baptist Church that's on uh, 33rd in Indiana uh, basically is the birthplace of gospel music. Professor Thomas A. Dorsey is the founder of contemporary gospel music. Well, today, uh, at around 3.30, 4 o'clock, they're having um, a celebration, a tribute to this individual in history. It's also part of um, uh, a rebuilding initiative. About a few years ago, uh, Pilgrim Baptist Church pretty much was destroyed by fire. And so uh, the new pastor over there is actually rebuilding uh, and with this particular endeavor, it's, it's given the congregation a new fire. And uh, he also has a very strong heart for teenagers and kids. So he has a very strong ministry over there. Well, 3.30, um, it's a, there's a musical tribute to gospel music. Um, if you're free, uh, you can make your way over there. You don't have to stay long, but just see what they're doing in the neighborhood, okay? Location is, um, I forgot the, Candace has the, if you see Candace, she has flyers. Uh, the specific address is actually on there. She's actually handing them out right now. Uh, it's very easy to get to. You just take 33, 33rd to Indiana, and you're right there, Okay. Thank you, John. Uh, this is one of the things we want to do is there's events in the neighborhood that you guys know about. Let us know so that we can participate in those together. Uh, so in just a moment, the ushers are going to come forward and receive uh, the offering. Please place your prayer 
cards in there, your visitor cards in there. Um, and then we're just going to worship together. We have kind of an extended set. And, and, and my prayer is that, um, that we as a church find a way to sort of balance these two things. Because on the one hand is sort of this complicating reality of being a multi-ethnic church and what it means to worship together, coming from different backgrounds and traditions. And I think Emily's question sort of touched that for us this morning. It's, it's tricky. It's complicated, right? So that's true. But as Ron said, the crucified and resurrected Jesus is what is most true for us. Amen? So yeah, it's, it's maybe complicated. It's maybe confusing at times to worship as, as a reconciled community. Uh, but at the end of the day, the cross of Jesus is thankfully simple. The Son of God taking on human flesh, living among us, taking on to himself all of our sin, all of our brokenness, all of our rebellion and putting it to, to death on the cross so that we could be free, free to encounter our God together to respond physically, emotionally, sacrificially and worship to that God. So I'm going to invite Ramelia to come up to pray over our offering and to pray and lead us in to this time of worship. I'm just quickly, we've talked about um, a number of different ways that we worship through song. Um, we worship through giving of our service and giving of our time to God. Um, but we also worship God through our giving. And I just want to read Deuteronomy um, chapter 12, verses 11 and 12. It says, Then to the place the Lord your God will choose as a dwelling for his name. There you are to bring everything I command you, your burnt offerings, your sacrifices, your tithes, your special gifts, and all the choice possessions you have vowed to the Lord. And there rejoice before the Lord your God, you and your sons and daughters, your male and female servants, and the Levites from your towns. And so I just want to remind us that even in our giving um, to God, that it is also a way that we come together and worship God. Please bow your heads and pray with me now. God, we come now to you entering this holy and sacred space. The space that you have called the place that we would worship you as a community. We come in this holy and sacred space, God, and say that there is none like you. That you, O oh God, are the king of all kings. And that you, O oh God, are the Lord of all lords. And we worship you. Like Kelly said, not because you require us. Not because you have commanded us, but because, God, it is the sincerest desire of our hearts to praise and to worship you. You, oh God, are the creator, the creator of heaven and earth. You, oh God, are the creator that took the dust of the earth and formed and shaped us. You are the God who blew your breath and gave us life. And so we take that breath this morning and we worship you. We worship you with our hands as we give. We worship you as we touch and give healing. We worship you as we embrace and we love. We worship you, God, as we speak truth into each other's lives. God, take us the totality of our being from the crown of our heads to the soles of our feet and cause us to worship you with our mind and our thoughts, with our hearts and our love, with our wills, God. Cause us 
to worship you. Take now our minds and our thoughts, O oh God, and cause them to be pleasing and acceptable in your sight as we in this moment now worship you. In the name of Jesus the Christ, we pray. Amen. Uh, thank you, worship team, for being creative with us today. And thank you, church, for being willing to kind of mix things up a little bit. My prayer is that the Holy Spirit uses moments like these to continue shaping us and forming us into a worshiping community, not just a collection of individuals who happen to be in the same room together, but a community that is being transformed by the presence of Christ in our midst. Uh, I hope you'll hang out afterwards. Uh, help us clean up. I think Warren's going to drag the hose out and water the flowers. You can help him with that. Uh, sign up for uh, bowling or let John and Candace know if you can join them at uh, Pilgrim Baptist later on today. But now receive uh, this benediction, church. And so, God, we confess now that you are a shield around us. You bestow glory on our heads and you lift us up. To the Lord we cry aloud, and you answer us from your holy hill. We will lie down and sleep. We will wake again because the Lord sustains us. We will not fear the ten thousands drawn up against us on every side. Arise, O Lord, deliver us, our God. From the Lord comes deliverance. Church, may your blessing be received from God this week. And now go in peace. We'll see you later this week or next Sunday. Oh, and get a popsicle on the in the back on the way out, according to Katie Dar. Good news. We'll see you next Sunday.